There is nothing more vital in the history of the Greeks than their rapid spread throughout the Mediterranean. From the Life of Greece by Will Durant. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton and this is another episode of The Greek Sun, the second of nine planned series of podcasts about the history of Western civilization and culture. So far in this series, I have covered ancient Greek history up until about 500 BC, focusing mostly on the cultures found in the southern portion of the Greek mainland, such as Athens and Sparta. Today, before moving on to some of the truly significant events soon to come, such as the Persian War and the Peloponnesian War, I want to briefly relate a few details about the rest of the Greek world, as well as explain some fundamental cultural matters. In the very first episode of this podcast, back in 2021, I described the unfolding of a map and the lines drawn there that showed the key locations of Western history. Today's episode really is meant to fill out some of that drawing a little more. And before we get started, please remember, wherever you listen to this podcast, to like, subscribe, and share. You can also visit the website, western-traditions.org, that's western-traditions.org, where you will find all of the podcasts along with maps, pictures, and recommended books to read. If you can, please support the podcast by purchasing something from the merchandising page or with a contribution through the PayPal or Patreon buttons found on the support page. And now that I've plugged the website, let's get started. The Romans coined the term Magna Graecia. That's Magna Graecia is G-R-A-E-C-I-A, Magna Graecia. They used it to refer to the realms of southern Italy and Sicily, which had been colonized by the Greeks as early as the 8th century BC. For the purposes of my podcast, I have commandeered the term to mean all the lands outside of what modern listeners would probably associate with Greece. Most people probably think of Greece as the nation within the existing borders of the country known today officially as the Hellenic Republic, and simply marked Greece on most maps. However, the regions which were actually populated by people possessing Greek culture thousands of years ago were much different, much more expansive, and far-flung, especially after they began to colonize during the later part of the so-called Greek Dark Ages. To begin with, there was mainland Greece, but modern maps exclude many areas that were part of that quote-unquote mainland. If you were to look at a map today, in 2023, to get an idea of mainland Greece, you would have to include the modern nation of Greece, but also areas like Albania, parts of former Yugoslavia, most of the Republic of Macedonia, and areas of continental Europe presently under Turkish control. But Greeks had also long populated the western coast of Anatolia. They had been familiar with that area since the Trojan War and may or may not have had some sort of genetic relationship with the societies there. They colonized these areas and established or at least populated cities such as Ephesus, the Greek town through which St. Paul would travel and to which he would write one of his famous epistles. Furthermore, many Greeks extended the Greek colonial reach deeper into Anatolia and to the shores of the Black Sea. Many myths contain lore about these areas, such as the journey of Jason and the Argonauts, in which they traveled to the coast of modern-day Georgia. And of course, there had been from time immemorial Greeks on the islands of the Aegean Sea, and on the islands known collectively as the Cyclades, which stretch out to reach the island of Crete, which was also a focus of Greek myth. 
Perhaps one of the most important focuses of Greek colonization was the island of Sicily. Many people would probably be surprised to learn that Sicily and much of southern Italy actually are really more Greek than Italian. The Romans conquered these areas, but in these regions, Greek culture and language would continue to dominate for thousands of years afterward, such that there are still Roman Catholic churches using Greek language liturgies in this region even today. The Greeks also reached lands as far away as Spain, but their influence and presence there was always limited because the Iberian Peninsula would eventually become a battleground for the Romans and the Carthaginians. More on that in a year or two after I begin the Roman series. But let's progress through these geographical regions and learn a little about the Greeks living in them. They will have increasing importance as time goes by, and as the Greeks demonstrate a sort of cultural unity in the face of the first of the Persian Empire's attempts to conquer it. We'll round out the Peloponnesus for starters. The regions I describe here are all mentioned in the catalog of ships going to attack Troy and Homer's Iliad. The Peloponnesian Peninsula is where the Spartans ruled over the Helots, but it is also home to many other cultures in ancient Greece. For much of the period under discussion, the Spartans held dominion over their own ter territory of Laconia and over the adjacent territory to the west called Messina. Here on the western coast of the Peloponnesus was the city of Pylos, where Nestor was king after the Trojan War, and which was the first place visited by Telemachus in the Odyssey. To the north and east of Spartan Laconia was Argolis, with its chief cities Argo and ancient Mycenae. The people here called themselves Argives, and this was one of the blanket terms applied by Homer to the Greeks attacking Troy. He called them Argives and Achaeans and Danaeans alternatively. Argolis was not a united kingdom, but rather a collection of city-states. This applies to most other regions I describe here. They were not organized, for the most part, centrally, like Athens and Sparta. Just north of Argolis was the city of Corinth and its realm. Corinth was long famous for its wealth, which must have been sustained in some ways by the fact that it occupied the land route from the Peloponnesus to the rest of the mainland Greece, and the isthmus it occupied allowed it access to two overseas trade routes as well. Now, west of Corinth, on the northern coast of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, was the territory of the Achaeans. That's A-C-H-A-E-A-N-S, the Achaeans, another name used by Homer to apply to the Greeks in the Trojan War. Adjacent to Achaea was Elis, a coastal region on the northwest corner of the Peloponnesus. And then finally, there was Arcadia, the mountainous central region of the Peloponnesus, which all these other regions bordered. Arcadia is interesting most of all because the dialect of Greek spoken there by its inhabitants was called Pelasgian by Herodotus. This language, this version of Greece, of Greek, may be evidence of the veracity of the Dorian invasion legend because the inhabitants of all those surrounding areas that I already mentioned, they all spoke the Doric dialect and so Arcadia may have served as a Dark Ages mountain redoubt or refuge for the original inhabitants of the land when the Dorians arrived and conquered. Now, venturing beyond the Peloponnesus, we come to Megara. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's M-E-G-A-R-A. The city-state on the eastern end of the Corinthian Isthmus was adjacent to Attica and was usually in great rivalry with the Athenians. Nearest to Megara are Attica and Boeotia, territories that I've already discussed in great detail in previous episodes. 
but there are beyond them in mainland Greece a great many small territories. Among those that I think uh, should be mentioned is the island of Euboea. Uh, it's spelled E-U-B-O-E-A, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, Euboea. This island, home to Ionian-speaking Greeks, that's the same dialect that, that was spoken in Athens, this island is quite large. It's over 3,600 square kilometers, and it lies quite close to much of mainland Greece. It may have actually been geographically connected to the mainland in recent times and sundered from it by an earthquake, perhaps during the Dark Ages or before. Athens conquered and colonized the island in the late 6th century BC, just a few years before the Persians attacked and occupied the island at the outset of, at the, outset of the Persian War. Now, coming to the northern portion of mainland Greece, closer to the region we think of today as the Balkans, there are some large realms that will play only a small role in Greek history during the Classical period, which will become much more important after the Peloponnesian War, as we approach the age of Alexander the Great. It should be noted that the people of these areas, while they spoke Greek dialects and while they were mostly accepted as fellow Greeks, they were also definitely looked down upon as more rustic and maybe even a little foreign by Greeks from central Greece, from Athens, from the Peloponnesus. You might consider how some citizens in parts of the United, the United States might look down on people from other regions, even while recognizing them as fellow Americans, the way people from the coast think about people in flyover land and vice versa the way northerners look at southerners, or the way Texans look at everybody else. The languages of these following realms were all Indo-European and probably closely related to Greek, if not actual Greek dialects themselves. Now, first among these grudgingly Greek territories is Thessaly, the great central plains area in which many crops, such as wheat, were grown. The men of this region would be recruited to form cavalry units that would eventually become a crucial element in the army of Alexander the Great, but more on that later. To the west of Thessaly is Epirus, that's E-P-I-R-U-S, a mountainous coastal region, the northern portions of which now lie in the modern nation-state of Albania. Epirus, while considered uncouth in some respects, was home to Dodona, an oracle of great fame, second only to the oracle at Delphi in Greek hearts and minds. Now, to the north and east of Thessaly was the land of Thrace, a wide and expansive region which was definitely considered semi-barbaric by the Greeks. Thrace comprised all the land that reached all the way to the Bosporus Straits, where Constantinople would someday rise. It was not a unified area politically until much later, and its lands were principally ruled over by a multitude of tribal kings. Finally, there was Macedonia, the northernmost region of ancient Greece. Mount Olympus marked its border with, Thess with Thessaly to the south. Exact limits of this ancient kingdom are hard to determine because it expanded into Thrace over the years. Macedonians were long looked at as sort of semi-Greek by the more refined citizens of the city-states to the south. All this would change when Philip II, and then his son Alexander, both kings of the realm, would seize control, first of all, of all of Greece, and then of the entire Persian Empire in the 4th century BC. A few more things about these other regions of Magna Graecia. First, there are the islands to consider. Odysseus was an islander from the west coast of mainland Greece. His Ithaca was possibly the modern island of Cephalenia, or C-E-P-H-A-L-L-E-N-I-A, Cephalenia, or one of the smaller islands near it. 
Then there is a great mass of numerous islands dotting the map of the Aegean Sea and the Cretan Sea to the south. If you take a look at a map of the Aegean Sea today, I'll put one on the website, but you can easily find one in a web search. If you look at a map of this expanse of water, you may be surprised by the vast number of islands strewn across it. The islands become especially populous as you look to the southern end of the Aegean, between the major islands of Crete and mainland Greece. This southerly collection of islands is known as the Cyclades. There are other island groupings as well. Now, many, if not most, of these islands were, once upon a time, Minoan societies, and then they were Mycenaean in later times. By the time of the Classical era, era, some of them had been colonized by people from the mainland. They all contributed to the strong maritime presence of the Greeks, because trade and communication for these island peoples required knowledge of sailing. Now, on the western coast of Anatolia, Greeks intermingled in the cities with peoples of other cultures, such as the Lydians and the Phrygians. Many famous Greeks of history hailed from this region, including the father of history, Herodotus, who was born in Halicarnassus, a city on the coastline there. By the time of the Classical era, colonists from mainland Greece had also passed through the Straits of the Bosporus and had begun to populate areas along the coast of the Black Sea, in places like Trebizond and as far north as the Crimean Peninsula. These colonies established and maintained trading contacts with overland commercial routes that came all the way out of East Asia. Xenophon, a famous Greek warrior and philosopher and a friend of Socrates, Xenophon would lead an army of 10,000 hoplites and other soldiers out of danger in the heart of the Persian Empire to find safety of sorts in the Greek cities on this coast. Perhaps the greatest Greek colonies were in Sicily and southern Italy. Here in the 8th century BC, Greeks began to arrive and build up their presence on the island and in the southern portion of the Italian, Italian boot. Famous Sicilian and Italian cities, such as Syracuse and Toronto, were actually Greek colonies. Here in Sicily, in fact, some of the greatest tales of Greek history would take place. You can go as far back as the Odyssey, for starters. This island and its environs are the setting for some of Odysseus's adventures. In Book 12 of Homer's Odyssey, the hero describes the sea passage between Scylla and Charybdis, the former was a long, tentacled nightmare that plucked men from their passing ships, and the latter was a dreadful, irresistible whirlpool that sucked ships and sailors down into the depths. This description is likely a reference to the Straits of Messina, the narrow gap between the toe of the boot of Italy and the shores of Sicily. One of the smaller islands off the, off the coast of Sicily, Pantelleria, is also likely to have been the island described as where the sorceress Calypso would have lived. Here also in Sicily would rise the famous Greek city of Syracuse, to which place the Peloponnesian War would extend its turmoil. Much later, at the end of Greece's decline, here in Syracuse would be born the great mathematician and inventor Archimedes, a sort of latter-day Daedalus. Not only did he develop several mathematical and geometrical concepts that are still learned in school today, but he invented a number of devices and instruments as well. He died when the Romans conquered the city in 212 BC. During the year of siege, which preceded the Romans' final assault on Syracuse, Archimedes designed and implemented ingenious defenses for the city. Among these was the Claw of Archimedes, which was a lever that extended from the seaside walls of the city to grab passing Roman ships, lift them high in the air, and then let them drop down to impact destructively against the ocean waters. 
Historians of late antiquity also believe that he used giant mirrors to reflect and concentrate sunlight, like an ancient laser, to burn the sails of these Roman ships. Now, tragically, the cultural divisions from the mainland continued to plague the life of the Greeks in the colonies. In particular, the Dorian and Ionian Greeks each established separate colonies in the region of Sicily and southern Italy, and these colonies formed territories that harbored the same antipathy toward another that existed in the old world of mainland Greece. So here, Doric colonists and Ionian colonists and other Greek cultural strains would maintain their grudges and fight in the wars that would consume Athens and Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. Greeks actually expanded beyond these regions as far as Spain and the coast of Africa, really, but the colonies and outposts that I mentioned here are the ones that will play important roles in the coming podcasts during the Persian War, during the Peloponnesian War, during Xenophon's march away from Babylon, and during Alexander's conquest of Persia, and during the decline and fall of Greece to Roman conquest in the 2nd century BC. Ancient Greek religion is a topic that I have approached more than once already in this podcast. I began with Greek mythology, the form of which most of us are familiar with. Cronus castrating his father Uranus, Zeus thundering and philandering, Aphrodite hooking up with everybody. Then I progressed to the evolution of Greek religion, an already familiar progression which we saw among the ancient Egyptians. The formal state religion, highly ritualized and focused on the well-being of the group, the state, its embodiment in the king, this official formal religion evolves into something more personal, more focused on the individual, teaching him how to reconcile himself with existence, with the gods, and to ensure a pathway to internal life. I want to spend a little more time now on the mystery religions which developed out of this religious evolution in ancient Greece. I will begin with the Eleusinian Rites. Eleusis, that's E-L-E-U-S-I-S, Eleusis, this was a city in the western portion of Attica, the province over which Athens ruled and which was essentially synonymous with Athens. The people living in Eleusis were thus Athenian citizens. The city is located on the western road to Megara. Sometime, possibly as far back as the Minoan period, but definitely prior to the Classical period, Eleusis became the center of a special religious rite focused on the goddess of grain, Demeter, and on her daughter Persephone. According to myth, it was the city in which Demeter found herself during her quest to find her lost daughter, who had been abducted by Hades. After a conflict with the royal family in the city, per the myth, a temple was constructed, and from there she waited until the world prayed for relief from the famine that had ensued while she grieved for Persephone. A marble relief of one critical scene from this myth remains today. In it, the goddess Demeter appears to be offering an ear of wheat to a man reputed to be Triptolemus, one of the princes of Eleusis. Behind the man, Persephone raises her hand over his head in an apparent act of blessing. The giving of grain to the world was a key component of the mystery. It was the positive component, but another key aspect of this whole thing was the suffering. The suffering of the world while the boon of grain was taken away. 
in this rite, this Eleusinian rite, in its transition from suffering to relief, from loss to redemption, we see a type of catharsis. And when you think about it, all mythology really is catharsis. The world struggles and suffers in the creation myths. There is chaos and then order is created and prosperity comes with it. In the story of Noah's flood, the world becomes corrupt, it is tormented, is nearly destroyed, and then brought out of the darkness and renewed. So in that sense, the mysteries of Eleusis are not that surprising or novel. From our modern perspective, in the wake of 2,000 years of Christianity, these specific mysteries remain truly mysterious to some extent. The participants, those faithful who walked the road to Eleusis just as later Christian pilgrims would walk the roads of Europe to reach sacred shrines, these Greek faithful would gather in the temple, and perhaps in its environs, to celebrate these mysteries, and we know very little about exactly what kind of things they did or said. We know that there was a priesthood, that it had a hierarchy, but we, we know very little about the rites themselves. The reason for this ignorance about the rites is due to the extreme secrecy to which all the faithful were apparently sworn to uphold. Now the poet and playwright Aeschylus, who lived during and after the Persian War, allegedly revealed some of these mysteries, or alluded to them, in one of his plays, and he was threatened with death for it. According to the story, in fact, he barely escaped the incident with his life. And we don't even know what aspects of the rites he may or may not have referenced in his plays so fearful were even those reporting on the incident that they didn't even want to mention what he might have said. Thousands of years later, we have just one accounting of what a portion of those rites may have involved. A Christian writer, Hippolytus of Rome, living at the tail end of the decline of these mystery religions and their hold over Greek hearts and minds, he tells us that the high point of whatever ceremony was conducted involved the cutting or reaping of an ear of wheat and that this was performed in silence. Having been raised as a Roman Catholic, when I first learned this, I was immediately reminded of the ceremony of the Mass, and how the sacred host, essentially a piece of bread, but representing the body of Christ, this is held up before the faithful during a silent pause in the liturgy. Now, the rites also apparently involved the consumption of a beer made from barley and other ingredients. This was known as the Kikion, and you have to forgive my pronunciation here. It is spelled sometimes K-Y-K-E-O-N or K-U-K-E-O-N. I'm going to pronounce it as Kikion. This ancient drink or potion really has gained some notoriety recently. It is thought possible that this drink was not merely an alcoholic beverage, but it was also a hallucinogenic, and that the visions it generated were partially responsible for the underlying ideas and doctrines of this religious rite, and perhaps for the, the rites and doctrines of many others. Apparently, as popular as the Eleusinian rites were the Dionysian rites. There were a variety of religious rites found in every town and city of Magna Graecia, and many of them practiced some version of the Dionysian rites. One of the later manifestations of this ritual worship of Dionysius were the Orphic rites. Now, Orphic is derived from the name Orpheus, and you may remember him as the lute-playing singer and musician who retrieved his late beloved wife from the underworld, only to lose her again when he looked back too early to see her before they reached the upper world again. Orphism, as it is known, 
was a religious practice that focused not so much on Orpheus, at least not during the classical era in Greece, but rather on the suffering, death, and resurrection of the wine god Dionysius. However, the connection to Orpheus is apparent. This is a religious rite about personal descent into darkness and the return therefrom. It's about suffering, about redemption. Like the rites of Demeter, and as in Christianity later, there is a catharsis here, a spiritual internal journey which transforms you. And there was more to all this than the religious rites themselves, whatever they may have been. Followers of Orphism were expected to reform their lives, to avoid immorality, as defined by the people of this time and place anyway. But it should be noted that this was an ascetic goal, much like Christians possess, whether they attain such a goal or not, that is, to be free of spiritual contamination from sexual license, from crimes such as theft and violence and so on. It appears that they even practiced, or at least extolled, vegetarianism. The Orphic Rites also involved, like the Eleusinian Rites, ceremonial drinking. In the Orphic Rite, the believers drank wine, as Dionysius was the god of wine. Again, this sounds very much like later Christian ritual drinking. But there were many such rites taking place all around the Greek world at any given point in its history from the classical era onwards. As far as we can tell, each cult or sect possessed its own theogony, or divine explanation of how the world came to be and what the meaning of life was. They focused on redemption, the moral reform of your personal life, ascetic living, spiritual communion, and so on. In the Dionysian view, Dionysius had become the son of Persephone, so the Dionysian rites seem to have inherited and adapted the Eleusinian rites to some extent, and the drinking of barley beer was replaced by the ritual consumption of wine, which was the blood of the god. Another manifestation of this religion was the Maenads, about whom I have spoken before, female worshippers who performed their rites in the woods and allegedly went on terror sprees, tearing apart animals and people that they encountered while in the midst of their mania. There is more known about the variety of Dionysian rites than there is about the Eleusinian rites, but even this information is not terribly reliable. Much of it is derived from late sources and often from competitors or detractors. We can question the veracity of the descriptions of some of these rites since the historians who describe them are usually not adherents of those faiths and are often getting their own information second or even third hand. Now, the third spiritual tradition about which I want to speak in some detail was not really a religion, but rather more a philosophy. You could host an entire podcast about the difference between philosophy and religion, but I'm not going to get into that here. But at this time in Greek history, there developed a philosophical tradition known as Pythagoreanism. It had its roots in the ideas of Pythagoras, that's P-Y-T-H-A-G-O-R-A-S, as it's typically spelled. Pythagoras was a famous mathematician and thinker. He lived in the 6th century BC and probably died just five years before the Greek victory against the Persians at Marathon. In his life, he developed several mathematical ideas, and we remember him specifically for the Pythagorean theorem, which demonstrates that the sum of the squares of the two sides of a right triangle are equal to the square of the length of its hypotenuse. This equation is known algebraically in modern times as a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Pythagoras also reputedly traveled far and wide during his life and learned a great deal of wisdom from either the Egyptians or the Persians or perhaps from both. Born on the Aegean island of Samos, 
Pythagoras retired to the Greek colony of Croton in southern Italy when he was about 40 years old. Here he taught a mystic philosophy to a growing group of followers, the kind of situation that would probably be termed a cult today. Now, Pythagoras spoke of the immortality of the soul. He spoke about numerology, the belief that numbers have spiritual or psychic meanings, and about a number of other topics that would probably be termed New Age-ish today. He also apparently spoke prophecies and stressed the importance of living an ascetic life and avoiding sexual immorality. But there are different opinions about his own sexual practices and whether he had children or not. He may or may not actually have formed this sect of believers, if we can call them that, because there's no specific adherence to any god involved in their quote-unquote beliefs, but this community anyway outlived him for several centuries and formed not just a body of followers, but a social, cultural, and political sect that did not fade away completely until Christianity fully took over the Roman religious sphere in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. These are just a small selection of the many mystery religions that appeared around the Mediterranean during this time. In Egypt, the Osirian rites used much of the same imagery and ideas. Now, you can definitely see some relationship between these mystery religions, especially in terms of their rites and rituals, their symbolism, their ascetic practices, and so on. You can see some relationship between that, certainly, and the Christian religion that would appear at the high point of the Roman Empire. The descriptions of their practices can often remind one of Catholicism or Christian Orthodoxy in the East, especially with their profound liturgies, which repeat again and again these cathartic experiences and accounts of suffering and sin, which can remind you of the gospel stories about Jesus the Christ. However, these religions and philosophies, they didn't have the kind of hierarchical structures which those Christian expressions possess today. They possessed leadership, priesthoods, what have you, yes, but they were, they were organized or not on a large scale, perhaps much more like the evangelical Christian movement is. There's multiple groups of adherence to a faith, but each has their own particular take, their own ritual, their traditions, and there's no one to enforce any kind of discipline down the chain of command. Yes, Eleusis had a central location, but it was not sending priests or priestesses out to enforce any kind of orthodoxy in the countryside. People came to the rites and took away with them, along with the vow of secrecy, their own take on the meaning of everything. What I want to be most clear about, I suppose, as we progress through Greek history and as we approach Christian history in the West, is that the coming Christianization of the West, which will occur in the first few centuries A.D., All this was really a natural development of religious traditions that already existed in this region. The the Christians did not surprise the ancients with an innovative way of looking at God, at sin, at redemption, at morality, at the possibility of eternal life. All these things, these sentiments and ideas, were already at play in the hearts and minds and souls of the ancients. Even monasticism, or at least eremiticism, the practice of hermitry, even these things already existed among the ancients. Christianity would simply be the iteration of these doctrines, which would endure and prosper as the others faded from popularity. So Greek thinking and the religious thought of Greek men and women about whom we learn here, their spiritual thinking is not on any kind of disastrous route to a train wreck in whose wake Christianity will take over. Instead, they are developing Christianity themselves in the centuries before Christ, and they are more than ready to adopt it when that religion takes shape in the centuries after the death of Jesus of Nazareth.
Sexuality is another topic that I have addressed multiple times in this podcast, especially with regard to the ancient Greeks. As we enter the classical era, we can speak with a little more precision and certainty about the limits that the Greeks placed on sexual expression. For Greek men, there really weren't any. Limits, that is. This does not mean that every Greek town was a free-for-all of unlimited debauchery, just as I stated with regard to religion, practices, and traditions, and morality varied from region to region, from town to town. But overall, especially among the Ionian Greeks, men possessed near-total freedom in the sexual arena. Which is not to say that certain things were not frowned upon. For example, pederasty, the sexual congress of mature men with young boys, was accepted in many Greek cities, but that does not mean that being on the receiving end of this relationship was seen as any way desirable. In Xenophon's Anabasis, there is a passage in which one of the leaders of the march away from the disastrous battle near Babylon, one of these leaders is disparaged for being the recipient in his sexual relationship with another man, but this remained an opinion of the writer. It was not an actionable legal offense. Remember that up until recently in the West, sodomy, even when practiced by willing participants, was a crime and you could be thrown in jail for it. In ancient Greece, no one was going around throwing people in jail for their sexual practices. It was a matter of opinion and personal choice for the most part. The way you engaged in sex may have impacted your social credit, but you were unlikely to suffer any legal or other repercussions. Unless you you were a woman. Now, it's tempting to assume that women were everywhere oppressed into sexual restraint during ancient times, but that is not quite accurate. Herodotus will show us some very interesting traditions extant at the time of his life among other nearby cultures, and they do not all involve restrictions on feminine sexuality. However, it is true that this suppression of female sexuality is characteristic of most cultures at this time. As best we can tell, among the hunter-gatherers in the eons that preceded the agricultural revolution, circa 10,000 BC and before, female sexuality was quite unrestrained, especially as marriage did not really exist. However, with the advent of sedentary life, and most importantly perhaps the idea of property, female sexuality was restricted nearly everywhere that we see urban civilization. Greeks were largely no different than most other cultures in their restrictions on female sexuality. But the Ionian Greeks, as I mentioned in a previous episode, they did go farther, adopting what appear to be practices originally found in the Middle East, in which women were almost entirely secluded from the world, possessing their own quarters in the home, and not presenting themselves to strangers unless accompanied by their husbands. Again, just as Greek religions would have an impact on the way that Christianity was expressed, so would Greek sexual practices impact later Christian morality. Christian morality would simultaneously both reject the license of Greek men by expecting them to practice sexual continence, while it would simultaneously embrace its suppression not only of female sexuality, but of female public participation. Recall St. Paul's admonition in his first letter to the Corinthians women should keep silent in church. The coming era of Greek life, which we are about to discuss, this classical era, it's often romanticized as the age in which democracy rises up triumphantly and vanquishes ignorance and tyranny. I hope that this episode, and some of the others that I've prepared for you, I hope that they cure you of this overly simplistic view. 
There is much that is admirable about the cultural revelations, re revolutions taking place during this period, but it's also a very warlike time, and it's a period of great repression as well as freedom. And democracy does not always translate into freedom, nor does it mean peace. The democracy of Athens would seek political and military hegemony over the entire Greek world in the 5th century BC, and it would terrorize cities that not, did not want to join their league. And this same bastion and fount of democracy, Athens, it relied on the labor of its slaves to, to sustain itself, and it relied on its secluded women to churn out babies to make more soldiers. Yes, while often portrayed as an age of enlightenment, the classical era is just as much an age of oppression. Finally in this episode, I want to address the matter of the hoplite. Now, heavy infantry may seem to be an unlikely topic and not particularly thrilling for discussion, but it is a matter of great importance for researchers and historians. This hoplite soldier, first resisting and then conquering Persia, may be responsible for the existence of Western culture. Now, cavalry, in all its expressions, is often the most exciting topic in military discussions. And I extend this term cavalry to mean modern tanks and mobilized infantry as well, which just replaced horses as fast ways to attack and move troops across battlefields. From their first effective appearance on the battlefields of Mesopotamia sometime in the 3rd millennium BC, cavalry forces were often recognized as the most important factor in warfare. They could race ahead of or around infantry forces and, properly equipped, they could break up infantry formations with stunning attacks. But the Greek hoplite, a heavily armed and armored fighter on foot, had his own devastating impact on the battlefields of the 6th, 5th, and 4th century BC and would return significance to the infantry. As I have said before, there are other economic, social, and other such significances to the hoplite as well. In classical Greece, the hoplite came exclusively from the middle or upper middle class among the citizens, and this is meaningful because they were the most populous group in Greece at this time. The ancient division of society, as seen in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, skewed toward poverty in the sense that the vast majority of people in most of these societies, close to 99% or more, were impoverished, and there was a thin layer of the wealthy ruling over these masses, with a very limited number of people with standards of living somewhere in between those two extremes. But as we have seen in the recent episodes, at this point in time, the number of people occupying this economic and political stratum now known as the middle class had increased significantly. Now make no mistake, the vast majority of people were still among the unlettered poor. But the number of people living outside of poverty increased such that the biggest portion of Greek armies was now usually the hoplites. Hoplites may have accounted for as much as one-third of Greek army numbers in some cases. More importantly, perhaps, was the incredible effectiveness of this military arm. It would be Greek hoplites at Marathon and at Thermopylae who would stand against the Persians and either defeat them or bring them to a standstill. But what was a hoplite? What was so innovative and so effective about his armament and his tactics? As for his armament, it was not particularly new for the Greeks. A hoplite soldier wore body armor, often of bronze, but a heavy sort of linen was also used if bronze could not be afforded. 
This armor consisted of a breastplate or a cuirass to protect the chest, and if the individual could afford it, greaves, long pieces of armor to cover the shins. The hoplite also wore a helmet, which often had cheek plates to, to provide greater protection to the face. But without exception, hoplites carried a shield, and it is the shield which is the most distinctive aspect of the hoplite as a warrior class. Typically, these shields were made with three layers, wood, leather, and on the exterior, a layer of bronze. The shield was large, as big as 100 centimeters across, more than three feet. The hoplite carried a spear, and this may be a surprise to some listeners who more often associate pre-modern heroes and warriors with swords. Now, the hoplites did often carry swords, they were sometimes small, but these were generally secondary weapons. A spear was more advantageous than a sword in combat for at least a couple of reasons. One, it required less metal to make, bronze in this case. The shaft of the spear would be made from wood, which was much easier to acquire than metal, and only the tip needed to be crafted from bronze or perhaps iron to become a truly deadly weapon. Secondly, swords have a limit in length, becoming somewhat unwieldy if they are more than a few feet long, whereas a spear can be wielded even if very long. Indeed, the hoplites carried longer and longer spears as time went by, with Alexander the Great's hoplites in the 4th century BC carrying an extremely long spear known as a sarissa, and sometimes the sarissa was 20 feet in length. Now, if you thought a big sword was unwieldy, you might imagine that a 20-foot-long spear could really be impractical, but hoplites did not fight as their ancestors did outside the walls of Troy. There, in the Trojan War, men dressed in armor, not that much different than the hoplites, and they carried swords and spears, but there men stood and fought as individuals or in small groups, sometimes stretched out along a battle line from which single warriors or small bands would launch attacks against the enemy. Not so the hoplites. You have to remember the typical hoplite was not a professional soldier. He was someone who spent most of his time managing an estate or practicing a trade only making himself available to the state to form an army when necessary. So he was not spending much of the year drilling and practicing complex maneuvers with the formation. No, instead, hoplite warriors came together to form large, dense formations that focused on their cohesion as one body, a heavily armored body of troops bristling with long-reaching spears. This formation was called a phalanx. They were not very mobile, but whatever groups of enemy soldiers these infantry configurations ran into, they could overrun and destroy, except when they ran into formations of hoplites from other Greek cities. Then, as in every age of war, an arms race was necessary. To be victorious against other hoplites, you would need longer and longer spears, so to reach the enemy before he reached you, and you would need larger and larger formations. Thus, by the time of Alexander, the spears were so long, and his phalanxes were solid squares made from 16 files of 16 men, each phalanx ideally composed of 256 hoplites. Several phalanxes in a typical army would stand side by side on the battle line, composing a truly formidable force. There's actually an entire body of historical research dedicated, research dedicated to, to studying the development of the hoplite, and there's three different theories about how the hoplite came to be. I won't bog down into those theories, but I mention them to highlight how important the topic of the hoplite is to Greek history. Greek phalanxes, composed of these heavily armed and armored hoplites, will shock the world when they defeat the Persians for the first time in the 5th century BC, and hoplites will continue to dominate warfare for centuries to come, 
only fading from prominence when the Roman legions, which were in many ways simply developments of that phalanx, when the Roman legions began to conquer the known world. Beginning in the next episode, the podcast will finally take its first steps into actual history. That is, history supported by documentation intended to be historical. Historical writing based, however loosely, on research. The history of Herodotus, with all its questionable aspects, still stands as the earliest attempt to write such a chronicle. We will now begin to hear about the Persian War that long, unequal conflict between the Persian Empire and a few small regions of Greece. Until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.